Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. More than 50 members of the U.S. Congress have joined the Black Maternal Health Caucus. The effort, led by Representatives Lauren Underwood and Alma Adams, is trying to tackle maternal mortality. Georgia leads U.S. states in maternal mortality. In fact, research shows a woman is more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications in Georgia than in Uzbekistan. The numbers are even worse for women of color, like Dr. Shalon Irving, who died after giving birth to a baby girl, Soleil, in 2017. Congresswoman Underwood was a friend and says Shalon's death inspired her to action. We spoke to Shalon's mother, Wanda Irving, and to Brianna Lipscomb about the issue earlier this year. Brianna is U.S. Maternal Health Campaign Manager for the Center for Reproductive Rights, one of the organizations working to improve outcomes for women and is with me in the studio. Brianna, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Wanda, start with you. Of course, so many people listening have never met Shalon. What was she like? Oh, Shalon was an amazing person. Um, she was bright. She was vibrant. She was strong. She had a dual a PhD, uh, two masters. She'd gotten them all summa cum laude before 26 years old. She was a member of the globally recognized Epidemic Intelligence Service. She was a well-respected epidemiologist at the CDC. Um, besides the, the professional, she was an accomplished author. She had numerous scientific articles. She'd made contributions to several um, books written by her colleagues. She uh, co-authored a book that we recently got published. Um, she was well-rounded, a photographer, a gardener, an entrepreneur. She just launched a consulting startup, and she was my best friend and my my travel buddy. We traveled to over 20 international countries in just the last five years, and she had wanted to, to start that love of travel with her daughter. We had a trip planned to Dubai um, that was supposed to start five days after she died. She was truly, truly an amazing, amazing woman. Yeah, and doesn't fit the picture that we might have of, you know, a 21st century woman who dies in complications from pregnancy. She was thrilled when she became pregnant at age 36. You were with her during the birth, uh, and I know you're still taking care of her daughter, Soleil, (laughs) who we hear in the background. But yeah. but to a much sadder occasion, what happened after after the birth of Soleil? After Soleil was born, Shalon was so excited to get home. Um, I think it was five days after the birth, she developed a painful hematoma. She went um, back and forth to the doctor for that, and it wasn't healing. And then a few days after the hematoma, she started to feel not herself. She complained of headaches, um, weight gain, um, difficulty in urinating, 
and her blood pressure just kept rising. She kept going back to the doctor over and over again um, during those last two weeks and was sent home saying, oh, it's, you just wait, um, wait, it'll get better. You just had a baby. There, you know, no need to worry. And just that kind of dismissal, even though she kept telling them, you know, I know my body. I know there's something wrong. I'm not feeling well. I'm not urinating. I'm drinking gallons of water, and I'm not going to the bathroom. My legs are swelling. Um, my blood pressure is rising. I've got headaches. There's something wrong, and yet she was sent home. Even the day that she had the cardiac arrest, she had been to the doctor five hours before that, only to be sent home. Oh, Wanda, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm wondering for you, Brianna, have you heard stories like this before? We've definitely heard similar stories um, through focus groups that we've done um, and other work with just community partners. Is we're we're hearing that a lot of Black women, in particular. Um, even when they have access to care, the quality of care that they receive when they access those services is not ideal. Um, and that impacts their desire to even go back for services, but it is also impacting directly the outcomes that we're seeing. Well, it is striking. Uh, in uh, Georgia, three women, African-American women, three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related complications. NPR's Renee Montaigne did some very thorough reporting on this issue with ProPublica. She spoke with Di- Dr. Michael Liu. He was then director of the Maternal and Child Health Bureau for Health and Human Services about what the stress of racism can do to the body. We're talking about African-American doctors and lawyers and business executives, and they still have higher maternal mortality rate than uh, white women who were high school dropouts. It's the experience of having to work harder than anybody else just to get equal pay and equal respect. It's being followed around when you're shopping at a nice store or being stopped by the police when you're driving in a nice neighborhood. Those types of experiences create a kind of chronic stress that continues to gun the engine, which over time create the wear and tear on your body's systems. Brianna, your organization has worked with Yale Global Health Justice Partnership to report on race disparity and maternal mortality. This is part of a growing field. Uh, of study about what's called weathering. It actually weathers ages of the body. So what are we learning? Well, we're learning, number one, that maternal health is a very complex issue. And as long as we only address the clinical aspects of it, we're not going to move the needle. Um, And so to your point about weathering, um, you have women that are exposed to these um, stressors throughout life, and that is impacting their health before they even step into a hospital. And so until we are able to address those systemic issues that are impacting um, health for women, particularly black women, we're not going to see um, uh, the closing of that disparity gap. Well, and it's not just black women, but women in general in the state of Georgia. Why is why are the the is the statistics so high maternal mortality for women in Georgia? That's a great question. Um, and I think that we're still in the process of trying to figure that out. Um, as part of the Maternal Health and Rights Initiative um, for the Center for Reproductive Rights, one of our policy priorities is to improve the data quality around maternal mortality. And so we're um, we're supportive of the maternal mortality review committees that are being put in place. Georgia um, finally passed legislation in 2014 to have such a committee um, in place. 
But I think it's important for us to also make sure that the the people represented on those communities um, are diverse and um, that the communities most impacted by an issue are present as part of those policy and program discussions. Because right now we can look at um, we can look at medical charts and try to figure out, you know, what were the medical causes, but what were the issues leading up to that? And mm-hmm. until we're able to answer those questions, we're not going to be able to effectively address the issue. We're talking about Georgia's last in the nation ranking for pregnancy-related deaths with Brianna Lipscomb. We just heard uh, from and also Wanda Irving, who lost her daughter after giving birth to a baby named Soleil. This was in 2017. Uh, Brianna, I just wanted to mention, you you just talked about the state of Georgia is doing something about it. Um, the state allocated funding for the problem, $2 million. What is that money being used for? So to my knowledge, the the funds are being used to help a lot of the rural hospitals get up to speed, up to date on how to address these issues. You know, one of the leading causes or a few of the leading causes of maternal mortality um, specifically related to pregnancy are hemorrhage and hypertensive issues. And so um, to get our rural hospitals equipped, both with staff capacity, but also with, you know, real equipment in the hospital to address these issues um, in an appropriate manner is important. And so the $2 million is going towards quality improvement initiatives, um, often led by the Alliance for Innovation in Maternal Health, which is great. Um, and so we're, we're excited to see that progress. But I also think it's important to note that we've seen several um, hospital closures in our rural areas in Georgia, which impacts a woman's ability to access maternity care mm-hmm. in a timely manner. Um, and then we're also still seeing a lot of deaths occur in urban settings. And so we want to make sure that we're addressing those populations as well. Yeah, Wanda, your your daughter was in Metro Atlanta. Um, also looking at her Twitter bio, I see inequity inequity wherever it exists, call it by name and work to eliminate it. So this is disparity was something that she was particularly focused on at her work at the CDC, among other things. Now, we can't say with any certainty that if she were white, she would be alive. But do you think race played a role in her death? I don't think race killed her. I think it was the fact that doctors did not take race into consideration that made the difference. So meaning that did they respond to her? Did they, uh, her health had been pretty much pretty good. She'd had a couple of complications in her Mm -hmm. life. Right. But they didn't respond to her. They didn't take into consideration that she was an African-American woman and that there were stressors that the body had been uh, undergoing and that they should look at the history and put the pieces together. I think where the mistakes were made were in the fact that they were looked at in a vacuum. Her symptoms were looked at in a vacuum and not really put together and say, oh, this is happening, this is happening, and this is happening. We need to consider that there is something wrong here mm-hmm. and look deeper. Brianna, of course, prenatal care is a big part of uh, what women pay attention to and pe- doctors pay attention to in pregnancy. How about a postpartum plan? So, you know, women are encouraged to go in for um, a postpartum visit. And um, I know uh, just across the U.S., at times we struggle with making sure that women actually come back for that visit, right? Um, But the other problem with that is that one visit is expected to assess everything for a woman after she delivers. And we know that 
uh, maternal mortality, mortality, we look up to one year postpartum. Um, but for many women on Medicaid, their coverage only goes up to 60 days postpartum. So after that postpartum visit, if they need any other care or any other services, because Georgia is one state that did not expand Medicaid, they have no access to those services. Um, and, and that's a major concern because if, if there's complications outside of those 60 days, what is what is she to do? I want to end with you, Wanda. So tell us about Soleil. She sounds like a lively, young, young sweetie girl. Oh, boy. she's. Uh, um, before I do that, I just wanted to also say, though, that that postpartum visit is too late. Hmm. Had my daughter had a postpartum visit at three weeks, she might still be here. The six weeks, six months, whatever, is too late. My granddaughter is an amazing young girl. She is um, learning to speak. She has a wide vocabulary, and she's also taking French lessons. She's a wonderful ballet <laughs> ballerina and a gymnast. So she is, but she misses her mom. We talk about her on a regular basis. There are pictures everywhere in the house of her mother. She knows who her mother is. Um, but she doesn't know where her mother is. And one day she was at um, Gymboree, and a woman kept asking, where's your mother? Where's your mother? Because she didn't see me sitting right there. And Soleil looked at me like, what am I supposed to say, Grandma? Mm. And I, I almost lost it. And it's times like that that I just, you know, wish she had known what an amazing mother she had. But she has a lot of her mother in her. She's strong. She's vibrant. She's active. And she's surrounded by love by you know, the village her mom had put together before she died oh, and Wanda. by her family. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Wanda Irving. Wanda Irving's daughter, Shalon, died after giving birth to a baby girl in 2017. Brianna Lipscomb is U.S. Maternal Health Campaign Manager for the Center for Reproductive Rights. U.S. House Democrats are trying to address the statistics and stories that Wanda and Brianna have been talking about by forming the new Black Maternal Health Caucus. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From waiting rooms across the country to the floor of the U.S. Capitol, health care is the biggest issue for American voters. One of the biggest challenges in Georgia is access to doctors and to pharmacies, especially in rural parts of the state. And then there is the cost of care. According to the Commonwealth Fund, a quarter of Americans report not filling prescriptions they can't afford. Some individuals, organizations, and policymakers aim to improve health care equity, access, and affordability. And we aim to explore some of those innovative solutions, starting with a nonprofit that distributes surplus drugs to low-income people. Kia Williams and Adam Kircher are two co-founders of Serum. It's now operating the Good Pill Pharmacy out of a warehouse in Gwinnett County, and they're here with me in the studio to talk about it. Kia, Adam, welcome. Thank you for having us today. We're thrilled. Absolute pleasure. Well, I'm glad to have you with us. And I want to get to the root of the problem a little bit before we look at what Serum is doing 
the conversation around affordable health care, that is often about cost of diagnosis or services, hospital stays, even seeing a doctor. Kia, how do prescription medications factor into health care issues here in the U.S.? Getting a diagnosis and seeing a doctor is an important component in this whole process of improving health, but it's not where it ends. Oftentimes, folks get a diagnosis, they need to take a medication, and we send them out the door, and they just can't afford it. One in four people in the U.S. right now can't afford the prescription drugs they need to stay healthy. So a typical serum patient might be on over three medications. They may live a far distance from a pharmacy, be elderly, not have a car. They could potentially be an hourly wage worker who has to take off of work and lose wages in order to make that commute. And then when they get there, they're faced with a cash price for medicine that's many times higher than what you or I would pay. And then to make matters even worse, prices vary so widely among pharmacies that they might have to visit multiple pharmacies just in order to cobble together the best price for each of their medications. So we see all these downstream impacts, avoidable emergency room visits, hospitalizations, that when we try to best quantify them, it actually costs our healthcare system over $100 billion every year. And the lack of access to medicine disproportionately impacts underserved groups, including communities of color, both in rural and urban areas. So what is Serum doing to help? Serum connects surplus unused medicine from places throughout the healthcare ecosystem. So we're talking manufacturers, wholesalers, long-term care facilities like nursing homes and pharmacies. So each of these types of facilities have a little bit of surplus that exists, um, either because they have a little bit of a safety stock or because of patient-level events, like someone has a dosage change or a medication is discontinued. And so all of that surplus across the healthcare ecosystem actually adds up to over five billion dollars of unused medicine that right now is going to waste every year. And let's clarify, this is not expired medicine. This is surplus. Surplus unexpired medications in healthcare institutions. So we're not talking about the medications in you and I medicine's cabinet. We're talking about unexpired medications that the reality is a lot of it where it ends up today is either in a medical waste incinerator burnt or in our water. And so what we do is we use technology to connect that surplus with the people who need it. So we have an online platform that allows these organizations to understand what they can donate, where they can donate. And we do really simple things like send people a box that they can put it in. It's really like adding a recycling program to their facilities because we believe if we can recycle a five cent Coke can, why aren't we recycling a $200 medication? So you don't accept donations from consumers? We do not accept donations from individuals. We get asked that question a lot. We're only focused on licensed healthcare facilities, and these are all medications that are unexpired and also no controlled substances, so no opioids. Okay. I was going to ask how they get to you. You send them a box and have them send it back to you? They put the medicine in the box, and then we get it directly to one of our partner clinics or charitable pharmacies. And so what's important here is in the state of Georgia, um, you know, we helped launch Good Pill Pharmacy to actually act as a statewide resource 
resource for all low-income families. So the pharmacy takes in medications from pharmacies and nursing homes right here in Georgia. And then because Good Pill is a mail-order home delivery pharmacy, we're able to actually get those medications to folks, whether they live in the Atlanta metro area or they live in Fort Gaines, Georgia and rural Georgia. There's a huge issue of access in what we call pharmacy deserts, where, you know, everyone has heard of food deserts where folks aren't close to grocery stores, but there are countless communities in the state of Georgia that are pharmacy deserts. In urban areas, it could be that someone's a few miles from a pharmacy. In rural communities, oftentimes people, the closest pharmacy is over 10, 15 miles away. So you're talking about a potential 20, 30-minute commute each way just to be able to pick up your medications. And so by us being able to deliver those medications we're really giving people their time back and putting money back in their pocket in addition to being able to provide them with affordable medication that they otherwise are just not going to be able to get. This is a national program. Why did you set up in Georgia? We actually had a concerned citizen, uh, Mr. Les Gallant, had read about our work and wanted to see a program like this happen in Georgia. Um, we then connected with Representative Sharon Cooper, who's actually the chair of Health and Human Services on the House of Representatives side. But more importantly, her background is actually as a nurse. So she kind of knew firsthand that medication access is a crucial part of people getting better and living their best lives. So we actually worked with them on really revamping and creating a Good Samaritan drug donation uh, program here. So the policy side, super important, that allows this medicine donation program to happen and protects it. Yeah, I Uh, was wondering about that. There must be regulations about using surplus medicine and distributing them to consumer end, right? Exactly. So there's about 40 states in the U.S. that have drug donation laws that allow this type of work to happen. Georgia definitely has one of the strongest, if not the strongest law in the United States because it really not only enables, but it really prioritizes and really pushes folks to be able to donate by providing all the liability protections that one would need and really make it as easy as possible for healthcare institutions to do the right thing and donate. That's Kia Williams. She is here with Adam Kircher. They are two of the co-founders of the Good Pill Pharmacy here in Georgia. It repurposes unused surplus prescription drugs and provides them via mail order to low-income patients who need them. How does somebody qualify for the program? So here in Georgia, we're working with any individual who's either uninsured, underinsured, has too high of a copay or too high of a deductible, meaning they have a type of insurance, but their copays or deductibles could be thousands of dollars a year before their insurance actually kicks in. And the reality is if a family is making $20,000 a year, they're not going to be able to hit a $1,000 deductible to have their insurance kick in. And so instead of getting their medications, they're literally making the decision between picking up a prescription and buying groceries or paying rent. Hmm. We don't think that's a fair decision for someone to have to make. And how did they find out about you? We are thrilled to have a coalition of community partners. Generally, we call it the safety net of clinics. So organizations like the Georgia Charitable Care Network, which represents free or low-cost clinics that are seeing low-income patients throughout the state. So we partner with these community providers to help identify. And these are the doctors and nurse practitioners and physician's assistants who are having the conversations with their patients and who really understand that people are making these trade-offs. And so they're making these referrals to our pharmacy to help ensure that their patients are getting quality care. 
But also folks who are hearing about us on this wonderful program (laughs) can feel free to actually um, go on our website at goodpill.org and register with us. And we can start filling your medications. We try to make it as easy as possible for people to either send their prescriptions directly to the pharmacy when they're sitting in their doctor's office. They can tell their doctor they'd like them to be filled at Good Pill. Or um, what oftentimes happens is someone goes up to that retail pharmacy counter, is given a bill that they just can't afford, and so they abandon that prescription there. We also have the ability to actually transfer that prescription to be filled at Good Pill and mailed directly to someone's home. So I understand that you all started this kind of as a weekend project, people who were interested. What was the background and what was the motivation, Adam? Absolutely. The idea was inspired after I just made a trip to Indonesia. Uh, I saw in the news that a tsunami had devastated some of the places I had just visited. Mm. So I followed the relief effort very closely, and it was taking months to distribute donated medicine. I live in a world in which... I can order pretty much anything and get it within two days. And I wanted to use that same kind of technology and logistics to be able to get life-saving medications to the people who needed them. Um, So I joined forces with my co-founders, George and Kia, and together we discovered that there was over five billion, B as in billion dollars of waste um, that was just not getting to the people who needed it. So the three of us started nights and weekends. We were soon managing hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations. And so we decided, let's quit our jobs. Let's do this full time. Uh, George at the time was a neuroscientist at Stanford. Keo had done a lot of amazing policy work at the American Heart Association. Um, I was a former McKinsey consultant, uh, and I dropped out of uh, Harvard Business School. Um, But we've never looked back. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, We've made a great impact so far, and I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, well, so but but we do have the experience of people putting all of their photos into a failed startup or other personal material into the hands of servers of great ideas. How are you going to make sure that people who sign up and depend on serum or good pill for affordable drugs can continue to get them? We have a very sophisticated algorithm that basically holds stock until we have enough medicine so that when we do offer medications to a patient, we can continue them on that therapy um, indefinitely. One of our biggest fears would be to start someone on a medication and then not be able to see that through. And so we're very careful in order to make sure that they can continue that medicine from us. Have you ever run out of stock of any kind of medications? We have. So, you know, that is one thing that we so across the board um, at Serum, obviously, donated stock is not guaranteed. Um, And so what we work a lot on is making sure that we're looking at like historical data. So we've been running Serum since 2011. So we have about seven years of historic data on what medications are surplus and which ones have been donated. So we're able to use all of this historic data to project forward kind of what's going to happen, what are we going to get in our system. But the reality of what a lot of our innovation is, is that we're not relying on one or two big organizations to supply our surplus. We're getting donations from hundreds of organizations. So it's really creating a network effect where if one organization doesn't donate, 
you know, this month, we have 10 more who might still donate that same product. And so we really believe that this aggregation of the small amount of surplus from all over, that's really the secret sauce in so many ways into us being able to have a sustainable pharmacy going forward that can offer folks medications on an ongoing basis rather than a one-off. Did you ever consider becoming a for-profit company? This seems like something that would be very bankable. We are committed on mission first, providing access to low-income people in America. No one should be making this decision between groceries and prescription drugs. So how do we provide a low-income family, an underserved family with the medicine that they need and not have to you know, upcharge them. I mean, that's a lot of what is happening right now in the healthcare system. So how do we do this for as little as possible? So in Good Pill, most of our medications, over 400 generic medications, we're asking for folks to pay a $2 administrative fee for a month's supply of medication. We could not do that if we were not a philanthropic nonprofit organization who's putting access first. Has there been any pushback from for-profit pharmacies or pharmaceutical companies, for example, or politically? We were worried about that at first. We were kind of in a stealth mode as a nonprofit. But as soon as we were featured, I think in the New York Times, we had a manufacturer approach us and say that they wanted to donate through our platform. So a lot of those fears were unfounded. And I think one of the things that makes us so powerful is that we are aggregating hundreds of different donors from across the country. And manufacturers, for-profit pharmacies are all part of that equation. What is the incentive for these companies that have surplus drugs kicking around to give them to you? Well, they get a tax deduction and destruction is very regulated and can cost one to three dollars a pound. So there's a huge business case for donors to donate their product rather than destroying it. So what is the goal for Good Pill and for Serum overall? Let's say five years we're now coming out of our first full year of operations. Um, you know, we did our official launch in 2018, January. We actually now have redistributed to patients over $5 million of medication at yeah. Good Pill alone. And we're actually on track by the end of this year to reach $10 million of donated medications to Georgia residents alone. And that's wholesale value. It's working. This is the tip of the iceberg. We really feel like this solution of surplus unused medications, this could be an answer for our high drug cost problem that we have as a nation. And so we are proving that every day, every month, one pill at a time and $10 million by the end of this year. And so into the future, we're looking at the, how do we get to $100 million of unused medicine? How do we prove that we can save the healthcare system millions of dollars on the actual prescription drug costs, but also on the $18 billion of avoidable emergency room visits that happen every year, on the unnecessary hospitalizations, on the fact that every day right now in the US, you know, there was a study that came out that showed most families don't know where they would get $400 or $1,000 if they had an emergency. Us putting hundreds of dollars back in people's pockets has real impact on things like housing, on things like employment, on people's health. And so we think that this is a real solution to tackle so many of the poverty issues that we have in this country. Kia Williams, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having us. Adam, thank you very much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. Adam and Kia are co-founders, two of the co-founders of the national nonprofit company Serum and the Georgia-based Good Pill Pharmacy that repurposes unused surplus prescription drugs to provide them to low-income patients who need them, and they send them via mail order. We're going to leave you with, let's say, the jam, the bitterest pill. Up next, Dacre Stoker talks about what moved his granduncle Bram to write Dracula. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more on Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dracula lives, if that's what you can call it. Well, if you have actually read Bram Stoker's 1897 horror novel Dracula... They know a lot about him, thanks to Bella Lugosi. I am Dracula. Christopher Lee. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. Frank Langella. Count, um, some wine. You haven't... Um... No, thank you, Doctor. I never drink wine. And a legion of imitators. The seminal Gothic novel has never been out of print and continues to inspire others, notably the best-selling Interview with a Vampire series by Anne Rice, the Twilight books and films... HBO's True Blood series, fan fiction, comic books, and of course, Muppets. Aha! Greetings, class, and welcome to counting school! Bram Stoker's Dracula derives from old folk tales and superstitions. That's what we learned from Dacre Stoker, who for decades has been piecing together clues about what moved his granduncle to write Dracula. I found this one interview by Jane Stoddard in the British Weekly newspaper uh, that came out just after Bram wrote. Dracula. And it's the only interview we've ever found where someone sat down, like you're sitting with me, and say, why did you write the story? Where did you get this information from? What's the truth in this myth? And Bram went on to say, you know, it, it, there's actually a mixture of fact and fiction. People really believed in the 1700s that vampires existed. And part of it was because a little bit of ignorance of the decomposition of bodies. And when they would go to graves of suspected vampires and open them up, they would see a bloated body, which would resemble to them with sort of juices dripping out of the out of the mouth and making the shroud discolored, that this being was an undead creature coming out of the grave at night and taking the life out of the others. What was really happening is this body was bloating up with the gases, juices were coming out of the out of the mouth, and somebody else in the family had gotten the plague or something else. So they figured this guy was sucking their life. Uh So what would they do? Stake him into the ground. Or in some cultures, it was take the heart out, burn it at crossroads, and make sort of a tea out of this mixture and feed that to the others in the household. And we've actually found in 2004, that actually happened in Romania. 2004, they're still doing this this type of thing. So these are some of the things that, that we found out that Bram was well aware of. And again, in in, uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, they were doing the same thing, but it's tuberculosis. We spoke with Dacre in Savannah, a city crawling with as many ghost tours as ghost stories. Dacre was there to promote Dracul, the first ever prequel authorized by the Stoker estate. Dracul fills in some mysteries about Dracula's origins, including the first 102 pages cut from the original novel, pages discovered in a Pennsylvania barn in the 1980s under the title the undead. Then there's Bram Stoker's lost journal, discovered in 2011. 
Dacre Stoker teamed up with horror writer J.D. Barker to write Dracul. Together, they portrayed the young Bram Stoker as an author wrestling with demons that, to him, may not have been the stuff of fiction. I asked Dacre Stoker about what it was like for he and his family to live under his great uncle's legacy. Well, I, I first say we didn't live like the Munsters or the Adams family. <laughs> Many people believe that's a possibility. Did they think you we lived were, in a haunted house? We were quite normal living in, uh, growing up in Montreal, Canada. But there were a few of these old books high up on a shelf that Dad sort of said, just stay away from until you're ready. Huh. And I was about 12, and I kept, you know, I kept getting irritated when kids would come to the door at Halloween and go, oh, what's going to happen at your house? You didn't give us candy or take our blood. And I'm like, Dad, what's going on? And he finally said, okay, I'm gonna tell you. And he pulled this sort of mustard yellow book off the shelves and a Dracula, and it was signed by Bram to his mom. And then passed on to one of his brothers and his wife, and now it's in our possession. And it was like, okay, I, be I better read it. And I'm embarrassed to say at 12, I didn't quite get it. Mm. But I did leaf through a very old and valuable book. But years later in, in university, I bought a cheaper version uh, and, and did get into the story. And it was, uh, it, it was mystifying because it was not an easy read, but when you take the time and, and get through it and then think about it, go back and do it again and again, there's just more and more things under the, the layers. It's like peeling back an onion. There's more to Dracula than meets the eye. Well, then you resurfaced in your life later. What, in the early 2000s, you started really digging into research. Right, I mean, I, I had a sporting life and I was a teacher and, and it was like, Unbelievable, one day I got a phone call by this guy, Ian Holt, saying, I got a screenplay, would you like to get involved in turning this into a book? And I've never written anything like that. But that was a catalyst to start doing some really serious research, finding out about my family's background and the roots, and not just Bram, but the rest of them. And that just opened the door to where I am today, lecturing around the world, you know, books. It's a fantastic ride I've been on. You worked on a book of fiction with Ian Holt, right? The, the fictional book was Dracula the Undead. So this was like a sequel? It was a continuation. Yeah, it was a sequel of Dracula. It started 25 years after Dracula ended, and the little baby that was born, Mina's baby and somebody else's. <laughs> was it Jonathan's child or not? You, you have to read to, to see that one. But it was fun, and it, and it continued the story. But during the research for that, I actually found that one of my cousins, Bram's great-grandsons, had in his attic in the Isle of Wight in England a box of, of things, and one of them was a journal of Bram's. And that's when I called up my friend Elizabeth Miller, who was one of the foremost scholars in the world, and she says, Dacre, you have found you know, the Holy Grail. Nothing ever written like this has been found. We found his Dracula notes, his typescript, but nothing that is Bram as a young man growing up in Dublin as a university student and just pouring his soul out into this notebook, this journal. And some of it was romantic, some was funny, some was horrifying. But it was an insight into Bram's brain that sort of put me on the road to, I got to know as much as I can about this relative of mine. Well, especially because it sounds like your family was kind of backing off from it or not fully embracing it. So what was it like for you to look at those journals and feel this connection or, or revelations about well, this Well, I'll never forget what, what ended up happening is I couldn't take the real journal home with me. I mean, it's pretty priceless. So I had someone over there photograph it and then I flew home and I was waiting for all the images to show up as, as they would come fairly slowly. And of course I'm looking for, and I have to blow it up on the screen, is there anything about Dracula in here? You know, the origin of Dracula, is it here? Any thoughts? And there was a few pieces that it was, but the rest of it was this, again, this is Bram. He is a man who's aware of many things going on in the world around him. I also felt that he was sort of a conflicted guy. He was a clerk in the Petty Sessions Department in Dublin Castle, so it was a boring, mundane life. But he had this artistic side that wanted to 
sort of creep out, this soul to come forward. And his father slapped him down a little bit when he had an opportunity to do a play um, with Genevieve Ward, this very famous American actress. And it was like, no, you need to you know, be the clerk. You need to, we need you to work hard for the family. He was the breadwinner, Bram, for the whole family when his dad retired. Mm -hmm. So I got this glimpse into this sort of conflicted soul, this young man, which caused me to go deeper and deeper and find out more stuff about him. And that lost journal was the, was really the first the first piece to get me into his into his brain. Was it there that you discovered that there had been a preface written for Dracula, the original 1897 novel that well, wasn't printed? <laughs> oh God, that that's a really long story. But um, the preface was discovered in 1989, I think, by a guy called Richard Dalby. And it was like, okay, it was found in Iceland. It was translated. How did it get there? What does it really mean? But it struck me that this was Bram telling us his story is real. And I, you know, I kind of got the impression that Bram was not a kidder, but he could be a bit of a showman. He was a theater manager. But that stuck with me, this idea of the preface from Iceland that we now found out Books had to be serialized in those days for copyright protection. It went to Sweden first in the newspapers, didn't get published in a, in a book in Sweden, but the newspapers were sent to Iceland into the newspapers there. But for some reason, all the newspapers didn't make it off the boat. And so when they published the serialization of Dracula in Iceland in 1901 in the book, they didn't get it all there, but the preface was there. And the story has now come out. It's a, quite a different story. I wrote the introduction to it. Hans de Roos of, of uh, Germany you know, wrote the thing or translated it, had it done. But it really is a somewhat different story. But it is so darn, it feels it's so real. Real people, politicians, corrupt politicians running around London under the power of the count. Slightly different than the version we know to this day. So is that why it wasn't printed in the original novel? I, I, I think my theory is that it was a rough copy. It may have been a little too realistic, a little too horrifying, a little too scary. And uh, either Bram's own self was like, I've got to edit this, or his Archibald Constable uh, editor said, you, you need to change this. It's too scary. It's too real. Plus the fact that during the time of all this Jack the Ripper murders were going on, and I think the people in London were a little up to their eyeballs in horror and blood. So back off a little bit, Bram. You've got to make this a little more acceptable. The superstitions from Eastern Europe were sort of right on people's tongues. They, they felt that vampirism was a possibility and that it really could be something to be concerned about. And that's how you dig in with this book that you wrote also with J.D. Barker, who is, has written a few horror novels of his own. Absolutely, J.D.'s a great talent. I needed somebody with a thriller mystery side. Virginia, this is not just another slasher Dracula story. This, this needed to be the origin story of, of Bram Stoker and how he went about writing his novel Dracula obviously fictionalized with J.D. and my mm -hmm. input, as if Dracula was a warning to the world that vampires are real. And so you write the book as if they are postings in his journal or journal entries That's along right. the way. Well, he is a sickly child in the book, but also has some characters and some meetings that are really fortuitous or life-changing with a couple of different characters. One, a, a guardian of sorts, Ellen Crone. Ellen is that, Crone uh, really was the family. Oh, she was. So she, she's based she on a real person. Was she maybe one of those who was telling him these stories of the undead? We know. Which is quite a thing to tell a little kid. 
Well, yes, but it was Ireland at that. Okay, <laughs> these guys lived through cholera right, epidemics, right. And the banshees, and the it was commonplace. I mean, right. most people think, well, Savannah's different. They, they know about St. Patrick's Day and and all the things that go on in Ireland that are not just little leprechauns. I mean, their mythology is is horrifying. Banshees and fairies are not the leprechaun you see in, in you know the Notre Dame uh, guy running around with the pot of gold. It, it is some horrifying stuff. And, and we found one story, Derg Du, that fit perfectly in the story, a real story that we believe Ellen told Bram, and we wove that into our own story. So it's, it's almost like bringing Irish mythology to life by interjecting our characters into it. So he's coming into contact in this novel, begins so eerily, he's basically locked himself in a chamber with mirrors and crucifixes and a shotgun. That's right. Ready to hit someone at the door. I will let the rest of the mystery of the novel go from there. But pulling that fictional scene of horror from a life that was really, do you think, haunted by horror? I, I think there was some trauma in his life that was horrifying. I, I believe uh, I found evidence that he was bloodlet. And when I looked into one of his uncle's background that he wrote a, a treatise on bloodletting, and when I looked at what the description was of somebody who's bloodlet, that you are, a certain amount of blood is taken out of you until you pass out. And then they fill you up with, they rehydrate you with claret, which is red wine. So they make you drunk. So here's this little kid hearing these horrifying stories, hearing about premature burials from his mom from cholera epidemic, and then also being in this sort of drunken stupor on and off. So I really believe him. And when, you, when we think of post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, when I was driving down and I heard this interview of, of Parkland shooting mm. and, and Columbine shooting people, still, you know, 30 years later feeling this stuff, I believe Bram had the same sort of experience, that he had this in his background as a child, but then years later when he starts researching in the London Library about the real vampire scares of Europe, 1700s when the plague was running through Europe, they didn't know how to explain this, they thought it was vampirism. Years later, Bram comes to America and opens up the New York World newspaper and finds the same vampire scare in New England. 50 state-approved exhumations of graves, taking the heart out, burning it at crossroads, staking them. But it's tuberculosis that's causing the problem. But these old superstitions die hard. And Bram combined these things, his own personal trauma, with what people were led to believe to make this masterpiece. And that's, again, that's what J.D. and I explain in sort of a fictional manner in Dracul. Well, it is so fascinating, the kind of parallel of his mystery, discovering parts of himself and opening up to telling a story and you doing the same thing as you're kind of tracing his life. Well, it is. There, there's some weird similarities as I do that because, you know, from, from a, you know, a standpoint of a, a family member, the only one who's really decided, and I'm full, the family supports it. They're, Dacre, go for it. Let us know what you found. They, they love it, but someone's got to do it. And so finding these things, it's like putting a piece of a puzzle together. The more I find, I complete the sort of the puzzle. And, and Dracul is only a part of it, because there's still a lot more out there, I, I'm sure, that we've yet to find out about Uncle Bram, um, and even other things he's written, other journals. I mean, this was, sounds crazy, but the London Library just discovered that all of the books that he had used for research were sitting there in the general circulation. 
and a little bit of naughty way, Bram went in and started doing little notations inside the, the margins. <laughs> lucky for you. <laughs> well, it is. It's lucky for us because we can see exactly where these thoughts came from, ah. what, what he was researching at the time, these emerging sciences. I mean, there was a book that had a whole chapter on vampirism, on mesmerism. You and your family, you're the official keepers of the Bram Stoker legacy and estate. Yep. But look at where it's gone. You know, we have the Twilight movies. We have True Blood. We have, you know, countless Halloween costumes and even breakfast cereal. Exactly. You know, watching sure. what has happened Camp to this. Chocolate. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of that this morning when I was thinking, you know, it touches on little kids in breakfast cereal and the Count in Sesame Street all the way to, you know, movies, some R-rated movies, X-rated movies, and everything in between. But where people have gone with this, you know, the sort of goth imagery or the the idea of the beautiful vampire making their stealthy way through the night. But it sounds to me like Bram was struggling with what it literally meant to be among the undead. I, I think I think he was, both personally, you know, with his illness himself, but he also was a guy that recognized sensitivities of people around him. London was struggling with Jack the Ripper murders going on. Bram Stoker and Henry Irving had to stop production of um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the Lyceum. He was sensitive to that. Bram wrote a line that I love in Dracula. It sums it up really. There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. And nowadays we're dealing with the paranormal in a very same way. We want, to, we want proof, but we just have to believe. It's possible. If you have an open mind, it may just be possible. That's from my conversation with Dacre Stoker at the Savannah Book Festival. His new book, Dracul, is a prequel to his great-granduncle Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. Dracul is based on pages missing from the original edition and research into the life and journals of Bram Stoker. It's now being developed into a film by Paramount Pictures. You can find more on the novel and see image of some of the documents that Dacre discovered. That's at gpbnews.org. That is it for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.